COVID-19 has found its way into the White House. Three members of the White House task force are in some form of quarantine. But by Monday, all but three states will have at least partially reopened. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. I've spent most of my career somewhere between public health and politics. Up until about March of this year, it was a pretty lonely place. After all, most folks don't really want to pay attention to the place where politics and public health meet. Public health people don't like to have to think about politics. For most of us, we'd rather the world be data-driven and universally oriented to improving people's health. And most politicians, for their part, don't tend to care much for public health. It's usually just an afterthought, plugging away in the background. It's not flashy, more annoying, like that aunt or uncle who seems to always pry into your habits, trying to get you to drink less pop or stop vaping. And then this happened. I announced today that the New York City public schools will remain closed. We know that the effects of this pandemic will not subside anytime soon. Microsoft co-founder and billionaire philanthropist Bill Gates is urging the federal government to shut down the entire country to save lives. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is listening, making her daily check-in call with doctors and nurses on the front lines of the fight against coronavirus. Just outside her office window, the front lines of another fight. Protesters surrounding the Capitol in a drive-by demonstration. But whether or not people care to admit it, Public health has always been political. And politics has always, at its core, been about people's well-being. That's why I always stop and scratch my head when I hear people respond to honest criticism of the way politicians are handling this pandemic by saying things like, you're politicizing the pandemic. Politics, at its most basic level, is the way we decide how to allocate scarce resources. And as we've explored throughout this podcast, health is a scarce resource. Think about it. Not everyone gets to have a long, healthy life. And the folks who don't tend to be the people who lack resources, whether income or wealth or education or social capital or prestige or networks, in the first place. Think about who COVID-19 has affected worst. Stay-at-home orders across the country have forced a lot of businesses to close. But grocery stores, gas stations, and restaurants are still considered essential. Some employees in those particular fields are worried about their health, too. We just have gloves at McDonald's. We don't wear face masks. At first, we didn't have nothing to shield the uh, employers from uh, in front of the counter, uh, counter. I'm asthmatic and I'm diabetic, so I'm at high risk of catching this coronavirus from anyone that comes in contact with me. At this point, I look like I'm going to have to apply for uh, unemployment, uh, food stamps, uh, whatever I can get to help me survive right now. If we really believed that everyone should have a long, healthy life, then we should be willing to reallocate those resources that shape people's health. And that's why to have public health is itself a political choice. But here's the thing. If public health is a political choice, what does that politics look like? Well, we'd want a politics that values people's health, recognizes that promoting health requires us to put science first, and be committed to reallocating the resources that shape their health. Anything short of that, is a politics that just doesn't value public health. It's that simple. Which brings us back to what it means to, quote-unquote, politicize a pandemic. Politicizing this pandemic doesn't mean acknowledging the role that politics has played in every single choice that has been made about how our society should respond. Rather, instead, politicizing this would mean giving a pass to politicians who don't value public health, purposely ignoring how their choices are harming the public's health 
in this pandemic. And here are the facts. Over the past three months, COVID-19 has fundamentally changed the experience of American life for every single one of us, some of us more profoundly than others. And rather than leadership to put science and health first, we've gotten this. Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. And this is their new hoax. Now the virus that we're talking about having to do, you know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat. Because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. You did disband the White House pandemic office and the officials that were working in that office left this administration abruptly. So what responsibility do you take to that? And the officials that worked in that office said that you that the White House lost valuable time because that office wasn't disbanded. What do you make of that? Well, I just think it's a nasty question. That is what it looks like to politicize this pandemic. Meanwhile, Nearly 80,000 Americans have died. That's the equivalent of almost three 747s crashing every single day since the first death we knew about in late February. That's 27 911s. That's two Iraq wars worth of American lives lost. So, yeah, I'm never going to miss the chance to dissect the full scope of public health. And that includes the politics that are ravaging it right now. And we could have seen this coming. The president's failure here was written in his political decisions well before COVID was a word. There is no issue that better demonstrates that than immigration. From his decision to end the DACA program, to his Muslim ban, to his activation of the public charge rule, to his concentration camps at the southern border, to the way he has deployed ICE to round up and deport people, he has weaponized immigration for his political purposes. And beneath it all are immigrants, actual people with hopes and dreams and fears and lives. People who have come here for nothing more than the notion that they could build a better life here. My parents, and unless you're Native American or Black, your parents or grandparents or great-great-grandparents came here for the exact same reasons. Undocumented people are among the most vulnerable in our society, particularly during this pandemic. We have deemed their labor, quote-unquote, essential, while deeming their existence illegal. And this pandemic has hit undocumented Americans hard. I speak about this with Ana Maria Archila, an immigrant rights activist, after the break. Ana Maria Archila is co-executive director of the Center for Popular Democracy, a progressive organization fighting for worker, immigrant, racial, and economic rights. Through COVID-19, Ana Maria has been fighting to ensure that the pandemic response includes our nation's immigrants— those documented and undocumented. She joined me to talk about that fight. Thank you so much for joining uh, me today, Ana Maria. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you for your leadership and your advocacy, both throughout these times and, and, and even before that. No, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so happy to be able to have this conversation with you today. So tell me a little bit about some of the obstacles that are undocumented sisters and brothers face in this moment as, you know, all of us are bearing down under the pain and challenge of a global pandemic. But what in particular are some of the challenges that uh, undocumented folks face in this moment? Well, undocumented workers and undocumented families um, are, for the most part, excluded from any safety net in normal times. Um, And in this moment of a global pandemic, uh, undocumented people are feeling this exclusion more acutely because 
every uh, package of relief that has come out of the federal government has made a point of excluding immigrant families, even families that have some people who are documented in their midst. So, for example, a citizen who is married to an undocumented person was excluded from cash assistance as it was um, designed in the previous relief packages. But um, undocumented families in New York, where I live, um, have been both the epicenter of the healthcare crisis, uh, the, the numbers of both confirmed um, COVID cases and the numbers of deaths have been disproportionately high because people have lived years and lives of not being able to access healthcare and lifetimes of poverty, which take takes a toll on people's bodies. Um, and so they have arrived to this crisis with um, being more vulnerable to with chronic conditions and and difficult kind of health situations and then have um, found themselves not being able to access care or being afraid of accessing care. So I've heard of stories of people waiting until the very last minute to go to the hospital, both because of fear of you know, what is happening inside the hospitals and because of fear of the bills, because they do not have health insurance and um, and fear of public charge, uh, which is, you know, essentially being uh, forced to repay whatever assistance they seek uh, from government uh, when it comes to when they have an opportunity to change their immigration status. So Fear has actually defined people's experiences with the healthcare system and prevented them from accessing it in the first place. Mm. Can, can you speak a little bit more to public charge? I think this is something that a lot of folks don't understand, right? Because you think about public charge, those are two words that can mean a lot of different things. What, what is the, the, the public charge rule and why is it so devastating, particularly right now? So when people become legal permanent residents or adjust their status, um, they are asked to prove that they will not become a charge to the public, meaning that they will not access um, different levels of government support. They have to prove that they are going to be solvent and be able to pay for their own expenses, essentially. So the idea basically is we're going to discriminate against you if you're low income in any way. And in effect, we're going to use this old sense of, you know, being a a quote-unquote public charge to bar you from getting all of the basic things that we offer a lot of folks. And by the way, you know, one thing that um, I think is really important to, to know that Ana Maria is, is entirely correct on is that like the, the implicit issue here is that we have this assumption that public support only goes to people uh, who are low income or poor. And the problem with it is that like in this country, you look at tax subsidies for home ownership, for example, and the vast the vast majority of it goes to folks who earn more than $100,000 a year. But of course, we don't think about that the same way, right? And so, you know, you're, you're discriminating against people who are on SNAP or on WIC or on Medicaid, um, but not necessarily on people who are getting these huge tax uh, subsidies to buy a house um, because they can afford a a house, right? Um, and so it's just, it's used as a way of discriminating against that like confluence between poverty and, um, and you know, differential uh, nation of origin. That's right. And it is, we have so many rules in our country that punish poverty and that perpetuate poverty. 
the way that you know the welfare system is designed in some way is punitive in its design and the public char rules are used to both discriminate against immigrants who are low income and scare people from seeking supports that allow them to survive and in this moment of a pandemic we need to make sure that people do not have fear about seeking medical assistance because it's essential for them for their own survival but also for the public's health and that's right um, the public charge rules that the trump administration has tried to advance have really harmed uh, public health because there are there are millions of people who are simply afraid of um, going to the hospital because they are afraid that they will have to pay consequences later on in their lives if they try to adjust their status or their families try to adjust their status at some point. So the combination of uh, you know an anti-immigrant persistent policy and rhetoric from the Trump administration and the barriers that undocumented people have to access healthcare in the first place have really been a very dangerous brew in this moment. And undocumented families are bearing the brunt of the deaths in many cities. Uh, we are hearing of the um, also the role that undocumented workers are playing in our economy and at the same time that they are excluded from any kind of support um, coming from the federal government. So I want to I want to zero in on two aspects here. So the first is the healthcare aspect and you're right. You know, this this pandemic is showing us that we are all as vulnerable as a society as the most vulnerable person and what we have is federal policies on the books that make some of the most vulnerable people in our society people who aren't protected by paperwork even more vulnerable, right? Because it basically says that there will be a cost to pay if you were to do the basic thing that all of us are told to do, that if, if we're really sick, we should seek medical care. Yes. Um, these, these pandemic is showing that our lives are deeply interconnected, first of all, in our country, in our globe, and that the structural inequality that we have um, the ways in which our society is, is constructed to have so many people so vulnerable, either because they are undocumented and afraid to seek health care or because they are living paycheck to paycheck and catastrophe is just around the corner or because their jobs, um, their health care is tied to their jobs. And when they lose their job, they lose their health care. Every single one of those components of how we are structured as a society has made us so much more vulnerable as a country and is showing um, how uh, the like we are as what you were saying, as strong as the most vulnerable. Immigrants are uh, among the most vulnerable in our in our society because they are um, exposed to tremendous exploitation at work because they don't qualify for unemployment insurance. So when um, so they have to toil and seek a way to make a buck every day because there is no check waiting, uh, no unemployment check, no cash assistance check waiting for them. And because uh, they are also in like living in most places in tremendous poverty, in overcrowded housing, in you know really dangerous working conditions before the crisis. And those conditions have made them both more vulnerable during the crisis. 
and uh, more exposed to kind of the, the both the economic uh, fallout of of these of the COVID-19 crisis and the public health fallout. Yeah, I want to speak to the economic fallout because one of the the, the things that we've been seeing are, uh, you know, America's um, meat supply is getting extremely thin. And part of that is because meat packing plants have become um, centers for for disease. And part of that is because of who works in them. And we know that a lot of times uh, these are places where you know, a lot of folks don't want to work. And so the folks who are willing to work, uh, those kinds of hours and those kinds of circumstances under that kind of pressure tend to be um, undocumented folks. And they're getting extremely sick. And so it talks to the the healthcare exploitation, right? That, you know, you have to work and that puts you in a place where your body is at risk of contracting the disease. But it also speaks to um, the what happens when our economy can no longer su- uh, rely on um, the supply of undocumented labor um, that we on the one hand rely upon and on the other hand demonize. Can you, can you speak to the, the role that the, we'll just say the undocumented economy plays in upholding uh, and undergirding our economy in general? Yeah. People think that undocumented workers are, um, you know, working in these like underground economy, these parallel system, but that is not the case. Undocumented labor is central to the formal economy of this country. It is central to um, the food chain, whether we are talking about um, vegetables or meat. Uh, It is central to the care economy. Undocumented workers are are a vast majority of the of those who provide childcare and elder care in our society. It is central to the like restaurant industry. It is central to the hospitality industry. People are not toiling in like the dark corners of our economy. Their labor is essential to major pieces of our economy. And their their labor in these moments of COVID-19 has actually been called essential while their lives are disposable. They are both asked to come back to work every day to cook in the restaurants that remain open and are delivering food. They're asked to work in the meatpacking industry so that people can continue to find meat in the in the grocery stores. They are asked to come and stock the shelves of those grocery stores, transport the food that we are ordering online. And they are at the same time standing in food lines. Mm at the end of a workday to try to get food for themselves Mm. and their families. So they're both at the same time essential and expendable. Essential and expendable, um, essential and excluded from any Mm. form of relief that is being discussed by the federal government. And this is um, extremely dangerous. I do not know how we as a country recover from this crisis if we are not able to allow people to shelter in place until it is safe to not do that. And if we're not able to allow uh, workers to have not just the protections at work, but the food that their families need to survive. I very connected to uh, an immigrant organization in New York City called Make Their New York. And it's an organization of primarily Latino immigrants. And to this day, Make the Road has lost 38 members to COVID-19 because they're living in the most um, kind of the hot zones of the, of the COVID crisis in New York City. 
but in addition to the deaths, what I am hearing is a level of despair that I had not heard ever before. And immigrants are used to living in fear in this country. People are used to living with a level of uncertainty that that is not familiar to most Americans. But, um, you know, because deportation is always a possibility, because family separation is always a possibility. But I have never heard the level of despair and sadness in people's voice that I hear right now, because they say, I have nothing in my fridge and I know I'm supposed to stay at home, but I do not know how I'm going to feed my family today. I have to go out and find some way to make $20 so that I can feed my children and myself. And how am I not at all contemplated in the recovery of Mm. what is a public crisis that doesn't, the virus doesn't discriminate, but the policies that we have in our country do. Yeah, I am. Um, that is uh, that's devastating to hear. Um, what is it that we need to do uh, to respond right now? What are the things that we can be pushing for to make sure that uh, our immigrant uh, neighbors and, and community members are cared for and uh, to make sure that, you know, also from the public health standpoint, that uh, we are not a- ignoring a community that uh, that needs to be taken care of, but that also because you know we're all connected here um, is is leading to you know just more death and disease in our uh, society. So I think I want to start with the healthcare question. This crisis has demonstrated how broken our healthcare system is. That as long as people's healthcare is attached to their jobs, they are incredibly vulnerable. We are all incredibly vulnerable. As long as we have a for-profit motive driving the decisions of hospitals, of how many hospital beds they have or how they staff their hospitals, we are all very vulnerable. So this is a moment to demand what we need. Uh, It is a moment that has proven the necessity and the urgency of implementing a a Medicare for all system, a single-payer system, that makes healthcare available to everyone and guarantees healthcare as a human right. There are policies promoted right now in Congress associated with the healthcare, with the COVID 19 crisis, both by um, Bernie Sanders, of course, and by Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal in the House that offer, as part of the response to COVID, a Medicare for all system. Um, for the duration of the crisis. That seems like a profoundly urgent demand. When we have 26 million people who have lost their jobs, millions of them probably lost their health care or are being told that they can you know, stay on their health insurance if they cover COBRA payments, which are astronomically expensive and do not include families, that is not a solution that works for people who just lost their income. And it, it is not a solution for a country that has such a broken healthcare system. So we should all be demanding forcefully a Medicare for all system, at the very least, for the duration of the COVID crisis. And we should be really demanding from Democrats and Republicans to advance relief solutions that include everybody, that both address the realities of essential workers that defined essential workers broadly, not just as 
firefighters and police officers and nurses and doctors, but as farm workers, childcare workers, grocery workers, restaurant workers, all these folks are actually allowing people to shelter in place. And so their labor, regardless of their immigration status, should be compensated appropriately and they should be they should have the protections that they need in order to do their job safely and they should have the supports that they need in order to be able to work because when we ask a nurse to show up to work but her children are not in school and she doesn't have anyone to take care of their children that is putting her in an impossible situation so we need care for their children and their elders and their family uh, to en enable them to do that. Right now, Congress is negotiating the next relief package. And Democrats have incredible leverage, especially in the House, because they have both, they control the majority and they will be negotiating with Trump directly on what the next relief package is. They should be demanding not what is possible, but what is necessary um, they should yeah. go big and bold and really meet, make a demand that meets the magnitude of the crisis that people are facing. I cannot believe that when I look at the pictures of, you know, cars lined up for miles in Texas for people to pick up bags of food, that those pictures are pictures of the United States of America. It is, it boggles the mind. To know that in a country as rich as ours, in a state as rich as Texas, people are, you know, having to stand in line to get food because they have no other way to feed themselves and their families. So this is a moment to demand a lot. This is a moment to demand all of us to be included. Um, and that means we have to force Democrats to fight for immigrants. They cannot really be afraid in this moment because the labor of immigrants is actually keeping us all fed right now. It's essential. Yeah, I um, really appreciate that. We always end on a, on a try and end on a on a note, um, just a personal note. How are you spending these days right now? So I am spending these days um, juggling the care for my children, who are my two kids, who are out of school and have their own homeworks and, you know, seven hours of work that they're supposed to do. And they are small, so they need help navigating every email and every Zoom call. Um, I'm spending time cooking for them and caring for them. And I'm spending time um, talking to uh, organizers and activists across the country who are um, uh, trying to band together to uh, force elected officials to really meet this moment with a level of urgency and um, forceful, like visionary demand that it requires. Yeah. Well, we um, well grateful for you uh, and your work and um, and taking some time out of what I know is a really busy schedule to to chat with us and to share those stories and, and that perspective. So thank you for your work and your leadership and um, and your voice. And uh, we hope we get to connect when. Uh, when we're all out of uh, out of our own homes and, and back out in the world and stay safe, okay? Thank you so much for your leadership and your incredibly powerful moral voice. I'm so glad you, as always, are using this platform to tell the stories of people in this country. Thank you. As always, I want to leave you with what I'm watching right now. 
Last week, Vice President Mike Pence's press secretary tested positive for coronavirus. That's prompted several of America's key scientific leaders to go into some form of quarantine. Here's Dr. Anthony Fauci on what he's doing. Dr. Fauci telling CNN that since it was determined he was at what he calls low risk regarding contact with the White House staffer who tested positive for the coronavirus, uh, meaning he was not in close proximity to the individual. Uh, He's not necessarily doing a full quarantine, but what he calls a modified quarantine. But that was Vice President Pence's staffer. Why haven't we heard about what he's doing? Meanwhile, President Trump invited the Joint Chiefs of Staff to the Cabinet Room for a photo op and no one was wearing PPE. This all begs the question, will COVID-19 begin to spread among America's top public officials? If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. Oh, and if you like hearing the whole picture about public health, not the sanitized and sterilized version that's afraid of pissing a few powerful people off, don't forget to rate and review this podcast. We'll see you on Friday for another dissection. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takeya Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening.